Good morning. Good to see you here today. My name is Gabriel Etzel. I serve as one of the elders here at CCF. And if I've not had the privilege of meeting you yet, I'd love to meet you after the service. Uh, I'll be up front here, and uh, some of our other elders will be in the back as well to just uh, shake your hand and get to know you maybe a little bit more if we've not yet met you and tell you a little bit more about uh, CCF. Uh, and of course, our members are here as well. We'd be happy to talk to you about CCF also. Uh, we will be in the Gospel of John this morning. If you want to turn there, uh, John chapter 2, kind of be the uh, anchor text for our message today. We've been walking through the Gospel of John, uh, just kind of a few verses at a time. And so this morning, we plan at least to finish up John chapter 2 in preparation for John chapter 3 next week. And so uh, John, uh, the Gospel of John is in the New Testament. For those of you who may be new uh, to the Bible, uh, it's about, about probably three-quarters of the way through the Bible, fourth book of the New Testament. And uh, as I mentioned, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the life of Jesus. We start with the introduction to the book itself, the first 18 verses where John kind of sets the stage for his writing, and uh, just came through um, a, a miracle or a sign that Jesus performed. We're going to talk about that a little bit, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 25. Uh, my prayer, my hope, as uh, I was preparing for today, is that we will uh, certainly have a better understanding of who Jesus is through the reading of his word, uh, and as a result, we'd be more committed and obedient to him uh, as we live out uh, the faith that he has called us to live out, and also as we seek to minister to others. So uh, let's look at John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, and then uh, we'll pray and get into the text. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for an opportunity uh, to share your word this morning. We thank you for the revelation you've given us about yourself through your word. God, I pray that uh, I am faithful to the text this morning, God, I pray that we are all obedient as we sit under the authority of the text this morning. God, I ask that through your grace, through your mercy, that you would uh, help us better understand our own hearts as we look at your word. May we be responsive to the work of the Spirit in our lives today. May you help us as we seek to minister to others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So uh, often when I teach on a passage of Scripture, it, it's really hard for me to get into the verses themselves without looking at the larger context. And so uh, I, I want to do that again this morning, just in case some of you have not been with us for some of the other messages. As you probably know, Scripture um, is not, uh, these few verses are not just written in isolation, right? There's a larger context that the writer, the, the Apostle John, wants us to, I think, understand under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so as we uh, look at just these three verses today, kind of as the anchor of the message, we want to make sure that we don't miss the, uh, 
the, the forest, right? We can look at the trees sometimes, but you miss the forest. Uh, when we study scripture and walk through it just a few verses at a time, uh, week to week, I think that's a great way to study scripture, but I want to make sure in doing that we don't lose sight of the, uh, the rest of the verses around it. And so uh, kind of four things, just kind of as ways of introduction, just a reminder of where we are this morning, because it really helps us, I think, to better understand this text itself. So for some of you, this is review. For those who maybe haven't been with us, uh, this will maybe be some new information, but four things to help us understand this passage a little bit more that we have before us today. Uh, number one, Jesus is at Jerusalem for the Passover. You say, well, that's kind of obvious because we just read that. Uh, verse 23 indicates that, but also if you remember, uh, the last two Sundays prior to this, we've been talking about Jesus being at Jerusalem for the Passover. So if you even look up a few verses uh, at uh, verse 13 in John chapter 2, it says the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Uh, I'm not going to take a lot of time to unpack what the Passover is. We've done that in other messages. I encourage you to go back and maybe listen to a message from a couple weeks ago when we talked through that in a little more detail, but just as a reminder, the Passover was a celebration, an annual celebration, to remember what Christ had done in the past in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, right? They're in captivity in Egypt, and the book of Exodus talks about that, and at that time, it's really the 10th plague against the nation of Egypt, and God uh, miraculously, right, brings his people out. And the uh, Israelites were to remember that. They're commanded in the book of Deuteronomy to remember that every year. So all the Jewish males were to go up to Jerusalem once a year. And so we see Jesus as a Jewish male being faithful to what the Old Testament had required. And in, a, in a real sense, being faithful to what he had required, since he's God, to go up to Jerusalem once a year. So that is part of the context. He was in Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, Number two, as far as the context, Jesus had just cleansed the temple. And so two different times we have a record of him cleansing the temple. This is the first time that we have this. And so last week um, we had looked at this as well, or a couple weeks ago we looked at this, that Jesus cleansed the temple uh, in the context of being at Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, keep that in mind. Again, we looked at that in more uh, detail uh, two weeks ago. But uh, this was due to righteous anger that he had because of what the money changers had done to the temple. But uh, again, that's important for us. Number three, okay? Uh, Jesus had just had a conversation with a group identified as the Jews. All right, so verse 18, so the Jews said to him, okay, what sign do you show us for doing these things? So as a result of cleansing the temple, this group of people uh, likely associated with the temple, right? They're called the Jews. You'll see them mentioned throughout the Gospel of John. They come to Jesus, and they have a conversation with him. Um, you know, what things are they referring to? Uh, you know, there in verse 18, uh, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Likely is the cleansing of the temple. You know, you've, you've done this. What sign do you have to demonstrate why you did this? And Jesus' response is, destroy this temple in three days, I'll build it up again. They thought he meant the, the, the actual temple structure. In the context here, we know that he meant his own body, and the disciples remembered that after his resurrection. And so, again, that's the context. But notice the idea of signs, right? Uh, notice conversation that Jesus is having with them uh, there. So, is that Passover? 
Uh, he had cleansed the temple. He had just had a conversation with a group of individuals identified as the Jews. Uh, then we have our three verses for the day. And then I want to give you a little context what's coming next week, right? Go ahead and read that on your own time throughout the week. But John chapter 3, he's about to have a conversation with one of the religious leaders, a very influential individual. Church history would say Nicodemus is his name, was pretty influential there in Jerusalem. So he's about to have a, a very important conversation. Not that all of his conversations weren't important, but I would say it's probably one of the best known conversations we, we have in Scripture Right, So John 3.16 is a verse that many people learn very early if they grow up in the church. And John 3.16 is in the context of this conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus. So it's in Jerusalem. It's the Passover. He had cleansed the temple. He has this conversation with the Jews. He's about to have a conversation individually with a very influential religious leader about ideas of salvation and the concept of salvation. And right in the midst of that, we have our three verses here for today. All right, you good with me? All right. Now, that's the immediate context. Let's take a step back from the immediate context and remember why it is that John wrote all of this, right? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me a few chapters, okay? John chapter 20. So I want to look at this just to keep in mind why it is that John even wrote these conversations down. Why did he record these miracles? Why did he uh, present certain things that he presented? So the overall purpose of the book, John chapter 20, the last two verses of John 20. So John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not, are not written in this book. Notice verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That, that's the reason, that's the purpose for the writing of the book, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, you probably are picking up on, well, the last couple verses of John chapter 20 kind of sound somewhat similar to the last couple verses of John chapter 2. Similar things going on, talking about the works of Jesus, talking about the idea of signs, talking about the idea of belief. Is there not some parallel between them? And I would say, well, there. There is, however, there's also a major difference, it seems, between what we see in John 2 versus what we see in John 20 when it comes to the idea of belief. And so the title of the sermon today, if you've seen in the bulletin, the title of the sermon is When Belief is Not Enough. And, and there's part of me that I don't, I don't like that title, to be honest with you. Uh, Pastor Brandon, throughout the week, he said, you know, how, how's sermon prep coming? And I was like, ah, it's okay. He's like, that doesn't sound good. I was like, well, no, it's good. It's just, I like, I, I love the text, right? We want to stand on the authority of the text. It's not that I don't like what Scripture has to say, but sometimes it's just, it's just kind of tough sometimes, right? It's like, why is it this and not that? And then the more you study, you, you get to a bit of an understanding. Okay, now I see why it's this and not that. But boy, that's kind of heavy, right? And so to, today's message, I want to encourage you. <laughs> But it's kind of heavy, honestly, um, as we would probably expect from God's revelation. But um, 
I know I'm guilty of, of maybe so often throwing around words like belief and faith and, and not really defining what is meant by those terms. And I sometimes walk away from conversations giving myself a probably a false sense of security um, when in reality I need to do a little more work and maybe push a little harder, right? So hopefully you get that from the passage, and hopefully ultimately it's encouraging to us. But I, I was pretty convicted as I was studying to prepare for today. And so um, that, that's just kind of where I'm at, right? Uh, and hopefully, again, through the study of God's word, uh, we honor him and glorify him. And if that means it's, it's a little bit heavy, then, then that's okay, right? That's okay. So I, I have really one point, but it's broken into three parts. <laughs> so work with me here. But it's kind of like point 1A, 1B, and 1C. Like they all go so closely together. I hate to even break them up. And But for uh, type A personalities, we, we don't call it three points. Just points uh, 1A, 1B, and 1C. All right. Point 1A. <clears throat> all right. Uh, not all belief is the same. Okay. Not all belief is the same. I'm going to spend kind of most of my time on this one because it just sets such a foundation for the rest. But look back now to John chapter 2, right? Uh, We were in John 20 there for a moment. John chapter 2, verse 23. Again, I'll read it to you now. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. If we just read that verse, I think today's message, we'd be really encouraged. Like, many believed in his name. Like, this is, this is awesome. Like, like, middle of John chapter 2, we have, like, Jesus performing this miracle. And we see in verse 11, this, the, uh, verse 11, John 2, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. Man, then he goes up to Passover, and he cleanses the temple, and he has a conversation with the Jews. And then after that, many believed in him. You're like, man, this, this is just momentum. This is great. This is amazing. But as we already know, like, there's more to this little section of three verses. Um, and, and so there's, there's something else there. So we can't just stop at verse 23. Um, the word belief, though, let, let's, let's pause there for a moment and just talk about what belief is. All right? Um, the word itself that is used here is used like over 240 times in the New Testament. So it's a word that's pretty popular in the New Testament. Um, it, it's very similar to um, the idea of faith, right? Uh, so we get the word belief here that's used from the concept of faith. So they're, they're almost basically used interchangeably at times. But this actual word is used 240 plus times. Of the 240 times, almost 100 of them, I think 98 of them, are used in the, in the book of John. So this is a really important word to John. If you throw in there uh, in his epistles, uh, his letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, uh, another few times. So you're getting close to half of the times the word believe is used in the New Testament. John is the one using that, right? So really an important concept uh, to John. Now, what does it mean, right? Well, the idea of belief uh, is, uh, I'll just read the definition, to think to be true. To be persuaded of, to credit or place confidence in, okay? So to think to be true, to be persuaded of, to credit, to place confidence in, or to entrust a thing to one, okay? Or to entrust a thing to one. So we we see the idea of belief, the idea of faith, 
to be persuaded of something, to think to be true, to place confidence in, to entrust to a thing or uh, entrust a thing to one. Uh, a major theme within Scripture, very, very important, and especially a major theme within John's writing. Uh, we also, I think it's important that belief is often in Scripture associated with the idea of salvation. Okay? So let me just read a few uh, verses, most of which you're probably familiar with, um, that, uh, that have this idea of belief associated with the idea of salvation. Okay? So uh, Acts chapter 16, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to kind of read these or summarize for you. Acts chapter 16, we have Paul in prison, if you remember that story. And um, they're, uh, he's in Philippi. And they're uh, kind of praising God, even though they're in prison. There's an earthquake that happens. The chains fall out. The doors open, right? If it's me, I'm running out of there. Uh, Paul stays, right? And the Philippian jailer comes in, right? And after a little bit of a, a conversation, he asks them, uh, what must I do to be saved, right? So, so the testimony of Paul and those with him, the fact they're singing praises to God, this Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Now, listen. Uh, the answer, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So, belief in the context of what must I do to be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10, right? Familiar verse to most of us. Um, part of that, read, but because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved idea of belief, the idea of salvation, going hand in hand there. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, we looked at this, uh, the idea of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, a huge passage that talks about this theological significance of the resurrection. At the beginning of that passage, Paul was talking about the gospel and the idea of salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach, the good news I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So again, salvation, belief. One more for you. Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. In him, or in Christ, you also, when you heard the, truth of, uh, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So there's just a few uh, ideas, a little sampling of the idea of belief in connection with salvation. We often see that within Scripture. However, we've already read today's passage, right? We see that believe apparently isn't always used in the context of salvation. There are times when it is not. Notice the next verse, right? We read John 2.23. Uh, let's look again at John 2.24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Now, what's interesting here, we, we miss it in the English, but in the Greek, the word entrust is the same word as belief. Right? If you remember from a definition, to entrust a thing to one is belief. So it's like almost a play on words that John's doing here. It's like John saying, many believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Or many entrusted themselves to Jesus, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. We'll get to the why here in a moment. 
but we understand, at least in this context, that there is something going on with the belief that they have that you'd say this belief does not seem to be belief associated with salvation. Uh, might seem like a strange concept, right? We're just kind of getting to know the writing. We're in chapter two still. We've got a lot of chapters to go in the book. Uh, so I want to kind of fast forward just a little bit. It's a passage that we'll look at eventually. But just as another example of this, this won't be the only time that, that John does this, uh, turn to chapter eight with me. And we're not going to take time to go through the whole thing. But just again, as an example of something similar, kind of the last half of John chapter eight, We're going to look at verse 31. John chapter 8, verse 31. Read, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Right? Probably a passage of scripture that many of you have heard before. You know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Uh, if, if we didn't know any better, if I didn't maybe set it up as I am, you might say, well, that sounds like something maybe he'd tell his disciples, right? Like a few chapters further from this, in John chapter 15, he's going to say, abide in me and I abide in you. I mean, that, that kind of sounds the same. Remain in you, abide in my word. You're truly my disciples. But if you look through John chapter 8, uh, through verse 31, and then through the end of the chapter, you know that the Jews, okay, and again, oh, the Jews, they seem to... Uh, have interesting conversations with Jesus that don't typically end well for them. Um, the, the Jews in this context, if you continue to read through this, uh, by the end of the chapter, they're picking up stones to kill him, right? So this, those who believed in him, by the end of this chapter, by the end of this conversation with Jesus, they want to kill him for the words that he's saying. Uh, look, again, very, very quickly, but look at verses 58 and 59. John chapter 8, again, just as an example. Uh, he, he's talking with them. Uh, they're, they're claiming to be the children of Abraham. And then he's talking about his relationship to Abraham. And uh, he actually goes, again, we're talking about the Passover in the book of Exodus. He goes back to Exodus with one of his statements here. Um, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, and again, some of us maybe miss that at times, but he's claiming to be the I am of the Old Testament. He's claiming to be the I am of Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is talking and having a conversation with God. And he says, who should I say sent me to the Egyptians? And the answer from God is, tell him I am. That's who I am. That's my personal name. Tell him the I am sent me. Well, Jesus is saying, hey, remember that guy? Remember who was talking to Moses in the burning bush? You know, that was me. <laughs> and the Jews are like, hold on now, right? Uh, even though the text said, well, they believed in him. You say, there's a disconnect there, right? Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but, he, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So we're going to see this again in the Gospel of John, where we have belief that is being stated, but it is not a belief in truly who Jesus is, okay? So keep that in mind as we go through. As one commentator said, there is a belief that is short of saving faith. Another one puts it this way. Let me read it to you as they're reflecting on John 2, 23 through 25. They said, but such faith is shallow, superficial, 
disingenuous is not true saving faith as John's play on words indicates. Although many claim to believe, Jesus knew that mere intellectual assent proves nothing. Even the demons have such faith, James 2.19. Like the seed that fell on rocky and thorny ground, those who possess such faith hear the word, initially receive it with joy, Matthew 13. But when their hearts are never truly changed, they fall away when affliction comes and when worldly riches beckon. John Calvin, talking about this passage, this is what he said. Besides, their faith depended solely on miracles and had no root in the gospel and therefore could not be steady and permanent. Miracles do indeed help God's children to arrive at the truth, but it does not amount to actually believing when they are amazed at God's power in such a way as merely to believe that the teaching is true without subjecting themselves to it wholly. Therefore, when we speak about faith in general, let us realize that there's a certain faith which is perceived by the understanding only and afterward quickly disappears because it is not fixed in the heart. That is the faith which James calls dead, whereas true faith always depends on the spirit of regeneration, which to steal a little thunder from next week is exactly what Jesus tells Nicodemus. Okay, we'll get there in a minute. But, but that's why this feels so heavy to me, right? How many times I've had that conversation with somebody, and in the conversation, essentially what I'm saying is, do you believe? Like, oh, yeah, I believe. Like, oh, awesome. Good job. Let's talk about football. You know, and, but what do we mean when we say believe, right? Has the person been regenerated? All right, so both, both, both of those commentators mentioned James chapter 2, so I feel like we should turn to James chapter 2. So keep on going in your Bible. A few more books. Let me just kind of read to you James chapter 2 because I think it, it kind of continues with this theme. <clears throat> James chapter 2, very close to the end of the New Testament. All right, verse 14, James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith it's by itself if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active um, along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by the works when she received the messengers 
and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let me summarize. If you have true faith, you cannot help but demonstrate that belief in what you do. If your belief is not lived out, it's not true belief. Like, like we know this, I think, at a human level, right? But this is a truth also at, I think, a spiritual level, right? At a human level, just a few examples, right? Like, uh, I want to provide for my family, but I don't go to work. That's a problem, right? I want to be faithful to my wife, but I sleep around with other people. They, they, you can't have both, right? I do well in school. I want to do well in school, but I don't complete my homework. I want to honor my parents, but I don't follow the rules, right? Like, there's a theme here. You're picking up on these, right? I want to serve the church, but I don't volunteer for anything. I'll keep going. Uh, I want to make the team, but I don't practice. I want to lose weight, but I don't eat right or exercise. Now I'm going to stop because now I'm offended, all right? Like, like we see this. And you're like, no, like you say you want. And my, my family would say, you say you love dogs, but you hate them. Yeah, it's true. I like the idea of them. Okay, anyway, um, right? But so... James is not arguing, right? James is not arguing, please, please hear me, right, that, like, you are saved by your works, okay? He's not arguing that. If you read the context there, if you read the context of Scripture, he's not arguing you're saved by your works. But he is saying, if you have true faith, it will naturally be demonstrated in what you do. He's saying, don't tell me you have faith if you don't live it out. Like, like that's just impossible. That just doesn't work, right? So, um, again... The rest of Scripture really affirms this, right? Consider Hebrews chapter 11. You know, I'm not going to turn there. I'm not going to take time this morning. But Hebrews chapter 11 doesn't just say Abraham had faith and Moses had faith and Noah had faith. It's, they had faith and it says, but by faith they did these things. By faith they did these things. By faith, I mean, re- read the list. of You know, call it the hall of faith, right? But it's like their faith was evidenced in what they were doing, it didn't just say that they had faith. Perhaps the best little summary of this, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I mean, this is a passage we certainly have read before, uh, familiar with. Uh, again, you don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But notice how Paul explains this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay? Not a result of works. However, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay? So works have nothing to do with salvation, but works have everything to do with living out the Christian life, because we can't help but to do it. So For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay? So we see multiple examples throughout Scripture of faith, yes, being associated with salvation, but also this idea of belief being associated with something that is short of salvation. We see it here. We see it other places in Scripture. And we understand that not all belief is the same. There's a belief spoken of in Scripture that is not a saving belief. All right, that's point 1A. Good? Okay, point 1B. Seek the Savior, not the sign. Okay? Point 1B. Seek the Savior, not the sign. Let's look back at John chapter 2, 
<clears throat> John chapter 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Pas- uh, Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Uh, throughout the book of John, uh, if you study the book, if you look at some commentators who, who you know, have studied this, right, wrote about it, they'll say there are seven kind of major signs throughout the book of John. Uh, we looked at the purpose statement of John. It said there's many signs that Jesus did. These are recorded that you may have believed, right? And so we know that Jesus did other miracles or other signs. There's several signs that Jesus did during his ministry. We have some of those recorded in the other gospel accounts. Uh, we saw actually the first of these signs earlier in John chapter 2. It's the miracle uh, at the wedding at Cana where he turned water into wine. And we, again, we know this, I already read this, but this uh, verse 11 of John 2, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee. So we know that there are these signs, and the signs themselves are certainly not the problem, right? Jesus did these signs, Jesus did these miracles. Uh, we even see signs associated with belief often in John's gospel. So let me give you a couple of those, right? The wedding at Cana. Okay, the response is his disciples believed in him. That's great. Signs and belief. We see that associated. Uh, Chapter 4, again, we're not there. You don't have to turn there. But chapter 4, you're going to have a healing of an official's son. And it said the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He basically said, Jesus, can you heal my child? Jesus says, go on your way. So he went on his way because you believe him. And then um, verse 53 of John 4, he himself believed in all his household. So we see a sign. We see belief associated with it. John chapter 9, probably one of my favorite miracles that Jesus did. Uh, Man born blind. If you remember this story and Jesus heals him, it, it causes a great controversy at the time. Uh, and eventually, though, Jesus has another conversation with him a little later on in that story in verse 38 of John chapter 9. The man says, Lord, I believe, right? Sign of Jesus resulting in belief. Thomas, right? We call him Doubting Thomas, poor guy. Um, One of the apostles, John chapter 20, this would be after the resurrection, Jesus appears to him, and Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas's response is, my Lord and my God. We see a statement of faith or belief. So we see signs. We see with those signs, belief is associated with it. So there is a genuine belief that can come out of that. Uh, belief in connections with the sign is not the problem. However, there is that parallel theme that we see throughout John's gospel that we're going to continue to see when in the book of John, there, there are passages with similar wording, but the reader is left to think, is the belief they're talking about in the name of Jesus really belief that leads to salvation? There, there are other responses. We, see it, we saw it even uh, last week, right? Verse 18 of John 2, when the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? That They wanted a sign. Jesus told them what the sign would be, the resurrection, and we see that they still don't believe in what he was doing. John chapter 9, I just mentioned the man born blind. Uh, because of the healing, there were some who were questioning him, right? The man himself believed, but those who were questioning the man in that story, they don't believe. They actually cast him out of the temple because of their unbelief, right? They did not truly believe. So we see that signs are important, but ultimately the signs are there to point us to the Savior, which is really 
5.1c. It, it should be very clear as we read through the Gospel of John. It seems so obvious that I almost don't want to say it, but it's so glorious that we need to say it all the time. And, and point 1c is Jesus is God. Like, that is the point of the writing. That is the reason John wrote the book, not just to record the signs, but the signs would point us towards belief in the Savior and that by believing we may have life in his name. How do we know this? Look back to John chapter 2. I'm going to read the three verses again. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew what was in man. That really is the theme of the book, isn't it? What is being uh, spoken of here is the the fact that God is all-knowing and that Jesus is manifesting the very nature of God. Jesus is doing things only God can do. Right, uh, the theological term is omniscience. Okay, it, it, it's seen really all throughout Scripture. What does omniscience mean? It means uh, this one uh, resource says it this way: the attribute that denotes God's knowing all things. Omniscience means all events are present to the divine mind. That is, God has direct cognition of everything in creation couple passages that speak to this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. No, and no creature is hidden from his sight. They're all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Old Testament. Turn to the Psalms. It's right in the middle. We got, we got a little bit of time. Turn to the Psalms. Uh, a pretty popular Psalm. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, often we talk about God's omniscience, the fact that he's all-knowing. We can talk about some of the other aspects of God's character, not only his omniscience, but his omnipresence. He's present everywhere, or all creation is present before him. And then his omnipotence, he's all-powerful. And actually, Psalm 139 speaks about all three of those, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, he's all-knowing. He's present everywhere, and he's all-powerful. Verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 139. Again, a passage familiar to many of you. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path. My lying down are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before And lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high I cannot attain it. The psalmist, David, is reflecting on the fact that God is all-knowing. Look at the end of Psalm 139. Like, What's his response to reflecting on the greatness of God? Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It leads him to confession of sins, right? Like, like, purify me, and it leads him to praise, right? Reflecting on God's knowledge. 
<clears throat> so John here in John chapter 2 is recognizing the fact, affirming the fact that God knows all things and that Jesus is God, so therefore Jesus knows all things. Uh, even the beginning of the book, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, it's a statement of the divinity, the deity of Jesus. Again, that's the theme of the book, that you can believe and have life in his name, but you got to believe in, in, in the true God, right? You need to believe in G who Jesus really was. You don't seek the sign, right? The sign points you to the Savior, and that's the point of the whole book, an invitation to believe in light of that. Even in John chapter 20, again, the reason for writing the book, uh, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We're, we're not here to be mesmerized by the signs. We're not here to just see a performance to entertain people. We're here to point people to Jesus, and that's why John writes this book. So kind of at the conclusion, though, of these three verses, we were kind of left, right, with an unfortunate chapter division, right, which was not in the original Greek. Because I think really what is happening is John is setting us up for the story about Nicodemus, okay? So like the context of this, yes, Passover, and yes, these conversations with the Jew and cleansing the temple. But it's really, this is preparing for this encounter with the religious leader of this time, talking about the significance of salvation. And so uh, without hopefully stealing the thunder uh, for next week, just a little preview because hopefully we're left with asking, well, what does true belief look like? Like, how, how is a person saved, right? I mean, that's the point of the book, but this story, I mean, you're, you're leaving us with those who really didn't have saving faith. So how is a person saved? Well, John chapter 3, many of you are familiar with it. Uh, the answer that Jesus gives to Nicodemus, the religious leader, is you must be born again. Faith apart from regeneration is, is not saving faith, right? There's a new life that God gives and only God can give. We cannot give ourselves new life. It's only something God can do. So, so here, here's the heaviness, right? Here's the fear that I have. I'm afraid that some of us believe, but we, we don't really believe. I, I'm afraid some of us have maybe been entertained by the signs, but we haven't really embraced the Savior, we have a knowledge, right, an understanding maybe, but we don't have genuine saving faith. You know, I, I fear for those, especially, hear me out, right, but I fear for those who have been raised maybe in that environment and it becomes so just customary, right, just so used to it. You can say the words, you can say the lingo, you can win in the sword drill, you can get there fast, right? You have some scripture memorized, but it's, it's not really translated into a change of heart. Here's the thing. We don't change our own heart. It's the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, right? You must be born again. Okay, that, that's the message for next week. But Jesus' words in John 7 kind of haunt me. Okay, Sermon on the Mount, John chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Right? That that's, should be haunting to us as we think about it. Have we been 
truly born again. So throughout this book of John, that we're going to be in for a while, right, that is a continual question we should be asking ourselves. Not only have I been born again, are there fruits of regeneration that are evident in my life? But also as I seek to minister to others and interact with others, I'm not just getting them to say a couple words that make me feel better. I'm looking for fruit of regeneration within their life. Have they truly been born again? Do they have a John 2 type of belief or a John 20 type of belief that they have life in his name? So I kind of want to leave you with just just some thoughts, right? Um, Not even really my own thoughts. Uh, I think this is helpful to me, but again, it still leaves me in a little angst. But uh, at the end of uh, John MacArthur's study Bible, he actually has kind of this little appendix or uh, reference, right, that says the marks of a true believer. Okay, so because again, hopefully we feel the weight of this and we're kind of like, I'm a little bit uneasy with some of this. And like, how do we know, right? Well, we know if the person's been regenerated that it's true faith. But what he does is he has a couple of the lists. I'm just going to kind of read them to you. The first list says, evidence that neither prove nor disprove one's faith. Okay? Evidence that neither prove nor disprove one's faith. And he had scripture to back them up. I'm happy to share these with you if you like the actual references afterwards. But visible morality, intellectual knowledge, religious involvement, active ministry, conviction of sin, assurance, even a time of decision. He said that does not prove or disprove one's faith. Now just visible morality, intellectual knowledge, religious involvement, active ministry, conviction of sin, assurance, time of decision. How often have I talked to people about those very things? And in doing so, falls short of what maybe God would ask me to do as I'm having a conversation with them. Again, I'm not the one doing the saving. God is the one doing the saving. But what am I really asking them? So then he lists the fruits or the proofs, right, of authentic or true Christianity. And, and you'll notice from this list, these are a little harder to assess sometimes. It's easy to say, hey, was there a time when you accepted Jesus in your heart? Oh, there is? You got the date and the time? Sweet. Nice. That doesn't necessarily mean anything, right? Fruits are proofs of authentic, true Christianity. Love for God. Repentance from sin. Genuine humility. Devotion to God's glory. Continual prayer. Steadfast love. Separation from the world. Spiritual growth. Obedient living. Read one more time. Love for God. Repentance from sin. Genuine humility. Devotion to God's glory. Continual prayer, steadfast love, separation from the world, spiritual growth, and obedient living. It's a little harder to assess sometimes. Why do you think we take so seriously the aspect of community, right? It's in the midst of community that some of these things come out, right? And and we can help one another, and we can look to one another to help us with some of these things. Not working our way to salvation, but if we're truly saved, these things will be evident in our lives. So my prayer is that God in an act of grace and mercy would reveal to us where our hearts are, that those we come in contact with and seek to minister to, that God would reveal to them where their hearts are, that we may be right with God, that we may be righteous in God's sight because of the work that Christ has done. My prayer is that our response will be like the man born blind, 
who had not seen anything his entire life, and yet the day he saw, he saw the Savior, and he recognized who the Savior was in John chapter 9, right? Can't wait till we get there. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture. But his response, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. May that be our response to the Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your text. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of belief. We thank you for the work of regeneration. May we take to heart the message that you have. May we not just be satisfied with some kind of intellectual knowledge. But may we be truly changed and truly born again through the work of your spirit. Help us as we minister to others. May we be an encouragement to them. May we help to bring your word to them that they may truly be saved. In Christ's name we pray.